Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. But we don't say that, so we will say William Tyndale translated the Bible into the English language. Even if right now you are for the first time hearing his name, his thought and his influence have been with you since you were born. If you are an English speaker or have become an English speaker, William Tyndale has been a formative influence on the way that you think and the way that you speak. Why is this? William Tyndale published an English translation of the New Testament and of a good part of the Old Testament, and then he was killed for doing it in 1536. The influence of his translation was carried along in the translations that followed. So the very next year, you had the Matthew Bible, 1537. It was just William Tyndale, actually, with the rest of the Bible that he didn't translate added. Then you had the Great Bible of 1539, Geneva Bible of 1557, and finally in 1611, you have the King James Version. Three or four out of every five words or phrases in the King James Bible are William Tyndale. Every English Bible in the last several hundred years, whether it wanted to or not, has followed in the tradition or in the trail of the King James Bible. It's not actually possible in the English language to entirely depart from the King James and its influence on the way we think, especially about things found in the Bible. But even if you grew up outside the church for someone who is not a believer, Tyndale has molded the thought and language of every English speaker. There is no single source beside possibly William Shakespeare, that's debated. There is no other single source more formative of the English language than William Tyndale's, what was carried over of him into the King James Bible. That shaped our language and the majority of it came from William William Tyndale. This is kind of difficult to comprehend because when we think about our English Bible, it is what it is. It's what we're accustomed to. It's hard to imagine that all the parts of our English Bible, the verses that we hold dear, that we memorize, that we quote, that we read, could have been translated in a number of different ways from what they are. So take, for example, these following phrases or statements that probably roll right off of your tongue. You will probably know the end when I say the beginning of each of these. And these along with tens, dozens more, probably hundreds, were never to our knowledge written, read, or spoken before William Tyndale put them on paper. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seek and ye shall find. With God, all things are possible. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, let not your hearts be troubled. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. If you take just one of those statements, let's say, with God, all things are possible. That's how we think of that. But that originally was written in the Greek language and was translated into English first here by William Tyndale. You understand that that in the Greek, moving to the English, could have been translated in a hundred different sorts of ways. It could just as easily have been All things are able to be done at God's side. That would be a faithful translation. But that's not the translation. That's not how you know it. And the reason is William Tyndale. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, 
the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, the New International Version, the Christian Standard Bible, every major translation of the New Testament that exists today says, with God, all things are possible. They say that because of William Tyndale. Tyndale not only made an excellent translation, it was remarkable, but his translation was so excellent that it shaped the English language so that today, if you wanted to translate that passage differently, you could, but it would not convey the Greek as well because literally our language has been built up by that kind of a statement made by William Tyndale. So there's, at this moment, nothing better in that particular instance. With God, all things are possible. If you've ever taken encouragement from that statement, it was through William Tyndale. We would, of course, still have a Bible without William Tyndale, but we would not have our English Bibles as they are without him. He just happened to be the vessel that God chose to bring the Word of God into the English language. And so we have it today. So today, we're continuing our study of the Reformers. We're going to look at how God prepared this one man, William Tyndale, for the single great task of his life, translating the Bible, and how much he was willing to sacrifice to accomplish that task, even unto death. So, William Tyndale was born in Gloucestershire, and... If you want me to spell that, you wouldn't believe me if I spelled that. It doesn't sound like that at all. So you can, well, you can't look it up because it doesn't sound like that. G-L-O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R-S-I-H-I-R-E. And the English just decided to drop the middle of it <laughs> for whatever reason. But that's where he's born. Why is that important? This is the southwestern part, county, in England, It's near the border of Wales, if you're familiar with geography, the Atlantic Isles. He's born probably 1494. Most of what I'm going to tell you about his childhood comes only in probably's because like John Calvin after him, he doesn't really volunteer personal information very much. He was a man on a single mission. It didn't involve personal information. But one safe speculation about his childhood is that God chose this region for him to grow up in Gloucestershire for a particular purpose, that is, for its language. Now, of course, the language was English, which will set the trajectory for the rest of his life. But it's more than that. This region was well known for the way it used English, its dialect, you could say. Gloucestershire, the way people spoke, was pithy, meaning using as few words as possible to express as much as possible. People in Gloucestershire liked proverbs, saying deep things with few words, what we call an economy of style, using few words rather than many words. This is what young William grew up surrounded by. People especially loved in that region to produce Beautiful sounds in how they spoke, but in a way that was common for others to understand. This mixture of a simplicity for the commoner, along with a beauty and an economy of style. That was his influence when it came to language the first 12 or so years of his life. Also important, probably, is the fact that he lived in the western part, most likely, of Gloucestershire, which put him pretty close to the border with Wales. And if anyone is familiar with Wales or the Welsh language, you may know that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was Welsh. And for whatever reason, the Welsh have just proven to be fantastic speakers using beautiful and powerful language. They have their own language, the Welsh language. That probably was having an influence as well. So this, in God's providence, preparing young William for a task he didn't know about yet. But he grows up with a sense of the cadence and the rhythm and the way that language works and how you can make language simple but beautiful. At about the age of 13, he leaves to go to Oxford. 
And that's interesting because you may at this point be thinking, well, didn't we study John Wycliffe, who also was English, 100 years prior, who also went to Oxford and he taught there? And didn't he translate the Bible into English already? Well, the answer is yes and sort of no. He or his students were involved in a translation of the Bible into the English language. But there were two problems. One, he brought it in from the Latin. And the Latin language, which is the kind of Bible the Roman Catholic Church used and uses in some places, the Latin language was already a translation of the original because the Bible originally was Greek and Hebrew. In the 4th century, it had been translated into Latin. It was still used by the church. And John Wycliffe, he only had that available to him and he translated from Latin. His Bible was a translation of a translation. So good but not nearly as good as it could be. The second problem was that it was not very beautiful. It was perhaps reflecting Wycliffe's own personality. It was boxy. It was not a beautiful, flowing kind of English. It got the job done. You know, it was suppressed in England. And so by the time we come now to William Tyndale, there are almost no, virtually no, English Bibles or passages in circulation among the English people. So anyways, Tyndale goes to Oxford. Tyndale differs from Wycliffe before him in another way, and that is Wycliffe loved Oxford. He was an Oxford man. It shaped him. His life is summarized by Oxford. Tyndale did not love Oxford. He went there to get the tools that he needed, and that was all that he wanted. He grew disillusioned with the worldly philosophies and worldly procedure. But the tools he needed, he did acquire, at least began to get these tools. Tyndale would become a brilliant linguist, understanding languages. He would eventually, starting here, moving forward, master eight languages. He knew his own English very well, Greek and Hebrew of the Bible, Latin of the church's Bible, And then he knew several of the European languages, Italian, French, German, and, um, well, one more that I can't remember now, Spanish, that as well. Eight languages he masters. So his concern is to get the tools that he needs. It's around this time, but again, we don't have a lot of data, that it seems he's beginning to realize people need a Bible. Did that influence his desire to learn languages? Or how did that interplay? We have no idea. Maybe he just really loved language growing up where he did. And then later God used that. May have been the case. Either way, he leaves Oxford. He graduates. He has a Master of Arts. He may have, again it's a may have, spent some time afterward in Cambridge, the rival university in England. Maybe. Whatever the case By 1515, he has his Master of Arts, and that same year, he becomes a priest. And a few years later, 1521, he settles down kind of for the first time by going back to Gloucestershire, his homeland. And he settles in a place we call Little Sodbury, S-O-D-B-U-R-Y, Little Sodbury Manor. It's the home of a Sir John Welsh and his wife, Anne Points. She'll be significant later. He settles there, maybe tutors the children and continues his study. He's a young man. He's just graduated. But the thing with Tyndale is he's a brilliant young man. He's not your average young man. And we've moved now, you see, with these dates. We're in the early 1520s. The Reformation has caught hold in places like Germany, and it's spreading throughout Europe. England is resisting tooth and nail, the church authorities and the secular authorities. The king himself writes a treatise attacking Martin Luther. They do not want the Reformation or its ideas in England. The problem is Tyndale embraces the Reformation and its ideas. And William Tyndale was not a man, even at a young age, to hold his tongue. And so at Sir John Welsh's house, 
Walsh's house, sorry, Sir John Walsh's house, while he's there, it's Sir John Walsh, so he's high in society and important people around about often come and dine at the table at Little Sodbury Manor. William Tyndale, as a guest, is welcome to join these distinguished persons, most of them high up in the church, clergy, priests, and others. It doesn't take long for Tyndale to get a very bad reputation. Because the problem is Tyndale's aware that there is an incredible amount of corruption in the church, in England, the Roman Catholic Church at the time. There was a lot more greed, a lot more acquiring of wealth, and a lot more immorality among the priesthood than there was anything like love or holiness. And anyone could see that, but Tyndale's willing to say that. That was the second problem. Not only that he saw the corruption, but that he had a brilliant mind, a great grasp of scripture already. He could quote it in conversation, and he was putting these much older priests and clergy in their place as he spoke of really reformed ideas coming out of Germany. Well, he quickly becomes unpopular. And it's at this point that if you've ever heard anything of William Tyndale, this event that's about to happen is probably what you've heard. One evening he's dining in Little Sodbury Manor. There are clergy priests around the table. Discussion gets heated, of course. And... Tyndale says the final authority is the word of God and God's law, not the Pope. And one of the clergy at the table replies, we would be better off to be without God's law than without the Pope's law. (laughs) Well, that's not the kind of thing you say to Tyndale. So he famously replies, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the scripture than you do. (laughs) That's about the time you have to leave town. (laughs) These were dangerous words. At the beginning of the 1400s, so this is early 1500s, beginning of the 1400s, the king at the time in England had passed a law saying, if we have heretics, we can burn them. That hadn't happened before in England, at least. Not long after that, Oxford decreed, anyone who translates any part of the Bible into English or reads any translation without our permission, the church, is, will be worthy, really, of burning, will be guilty. So that sets the stage for no one to translate the Bible except a few daring people like Wycliffe. Well, actually, that comes after Wycliffe. Pardon me. Wrong timing there. So really, there are no Bibles passing around, partly because you will be burnt. In fact, there was teeth in those laws. In William Tyndale's own lifetime, there was one instance where seven persons, six were men, one was a woman, parents, had been teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English secretly. They were caught, and all of them were burned alive as punishment. The Latin Bible, others were being burnt as well in Tyndale's life. The Latin Bible was the only Bible allowed by the church. And when we look back at instances like these, we think, how could you possibly hate so ardently a Bible in English? But you have to understand the context. The Latin Bible was the Bible of the church, and it had been in use for over a thousand years. The importance of the Latin Bible, it was not the most accurate translation of the original. That was not its importance. The importance was that in those thousand years, the church had developed doctrines, a whole sacramental system of salvation that depended not on the original meaning of the Bible, but on some of the mistranslations that were in the Latin Bible, but were not present if, if you translate from the Greek or the Hebrew. So, for example, well, I'll come to some examples later on. So, the Latin Bible was holding up the church. And the church realized if someone translates from the originals into English... 
They are cutting out the pillars from under us, from under the sacramental system by which we give grace that keeps everyone indebted to us. So they realize the danger. And I think Tyndale realizes the danger on his end too. But at this point, Tyndale's face somehow becomes set, just like Jesus' face set toward Jerusalem. He realizes this is the one great task of his life. If he accomplishes nothing else, he will get the plowboy an English Bible. And that will be the single note for the rest of his life. And he's going to do it whether it's legal or not, come what may. But he starts by trying to do it legally. Now, of course, the laws were you couldn't translate unless you had the church's permission. So in 1523, he left Little Sodbury Manor and he went to London to ask the bishop there if he could have permission to translate into English. He spends time in London at the house of Humphrey Monmouth, M-O-N-M-O-U-T-H. He will prove important later. He just happens to be a very important cloth merchant. This connects Tyndale to cloth merchants in London. You'll see why that's important later. Monmouth says that while Tyndale was there, he was also serving preaching as a priest. And Monmouth says he studied most part of the day and night at his book. He only ate soggy meat, easier to digest, I'm sure. And he dressed modestly. So here is a man on a mission as he waits to hear back from the bishop. Sadly, as you might expect, the bishop says no. But Tyndale will not take no for an answer. So he packs his bags, or maybe just his bag, knowing him, and he leaves London, he leaves England, and unknown to him, he will never see this country again. And in 12 years, he'll be dead. He doesn't know that now, but he understands some of the risk he's taking. He leaves England because he must, this is 1524 now, he's just shy of 30 years of age, he must get the plowboy a Bible in English. From this point forward, Tyndale Tyndale becomes what so many Christians have been and what we are spiritually. He becomes an exile, a wanderer, and eventually a martyr. But he's doing this because he wants his people to read the Bible. What's happening in Tyndale's mind is he realizes this, as he'll write later. The leadership in the church is corrupt. They're using their false system of salvation to drain everyone of their money. They're impoverishing even the poor. And the poor, the plowboy, the common person, will never know this without a Bible in their language. Because the priest will always mislead them and always say this is what the Bible says unless they can read it for themselves. So that becomes his one goal in life and so he becomes, we move to the next season of his life, he's prepared, he's now an exile and the work proceeds. Now for the next decade, it's kind of hard to tell where Tyndale is as things are happening in his life. That was on purpose He's moving around the continent, mostly Germany. He's moving from city to city because England wants him dead. The church wants him dead for what he's doing, or at least they will very soon. One event early on that's a kind of foretaste for Tyndale, who's inexperienced at this point, happens in Cologne, Germany. There he is in Cologne. He's begun his work of translating the Bible into English. He's been able to find a printer who will at risk of life print this for the sake of some money. And so this printer is beginning work and he's translating. He gets through the first part of Matthew. He has some help, a William Roy, not who he would choose, but who happens to be there. Not a great moral character, but he's helping him translate. So the work is going along. Everything seems good but it's not. And perhaps under the influence of some alcohol, some of the printers talk about what's going on. The church finds out and the church prepares to step in and stop it. Somehow Tyndale and William Roy discover this and they grab their things quickly and flee. The movies portray this as last minute as they're coming in the door. Honestly, maybe, but they were fleeing as the church was trying to take them. 
and they flee up the, the river to Worms, important city, and there they just continue their task that they had already started. Cologne was really a foretaste of things to come in more than one way. One, because it showed he would be running the rest of his life. But two, because that William Roy that I mentioned, there were not just dangers outside coming at poor Tyndale, but there were dangers inside, just like the Apostle Paul had among those claiming to be brothers. William Roy, probably really a believer, but immature. William Roy leaves suddenly. They're working in Worms. He leaves Worms. He pairs up with another immature friend. And around the time that this translation in Worms is finally completed, William Roy has the bright idea to write a satire, a humorous poem, attacking the church in a very childish and foolish sort of way. Now, what he says is true, but there's a big problem here, and Tyndale sees it. Tyndale's about to publish the first English translation of the whole New Testament. He knows it's going to get flack. It's going to be shot and attacked. And there's William Roy, whose name is attached to the translation because he helped And he is giving all kinds of ammunition to the enemy. He's going to make the reception of this Bible ten times harder by his silliness. And so William Tyndale publishes finally his New Testament that's completed. One third of the preface to the translation is nothing other than denouncing former friend William Roy without naming names. But everybody knows. So Tyndale has dangers outside, he has dangers inside, but he accomplishes the task he's pursuing, and that's what matters to him. So as I said, in 1526, in Worms, he completes the New Testament in English, and it's published. The same year, the Bible begins to reach England. Now how can it reach England? It is an illegal book. This is where our friend Monmouth from London comes back into play. Tyndale had some connections with the cloth merchants. And so many of the Bibles were smuggled into England, hidden in bales of cloth, among other things. Well, the church's reaction in England was immediate and it was fiery. In a very literal sense. They make fires and they start chucking New Testaments into the fire. One bishop gets up and says there are no less than 2,000 errors in Tyndale's version of the New Testament. Absolutely not true. That may be true of the Latin, but he says that of Tyndale's. Another bishop in his zeal will show Tyndale. It's said he goes and he buys up every New Testament he can find for a large sum of money, throws it into the fire. Of course, that's going to backfire because he's just funded the smugglers and Tyndale to make a a new revision. But anyways, not long after this occurs, this reaction, burning of Bibles, which, by the way, for Tyndale is unbelievable. He thought there'd be a reaction, but that they would actually burn the Word of God. Not long afterward, a sleeping giant awakens. Tyndale, for various reasons, had awakened one of the greatest writers in the English language alive at that time in England. You may know him from high school, actually. Have you ever read or were made to read in high school the book called Utopia? This is written by a Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More would become chancellor of the king fairly soon, very important person. He was an amazing writer. But he was on the side of the Catholic Church and commissioned by the king and the church. Others pushed to attack Tyndale and his translation. And thus, at this time, beginning 1528, begins the greatest battle in English writing. (laughs) And some of you think, can there be such a thing? But there was. This was a combat of the day. This was the entertainment. There's no People magazine. This was the entertainment. It's a combat between probably the two most brilliant English writers in the world, one in England and the other in exile. And for years from 1528, they write tracts back and forth refuting each other. Now, there are very hard words on both sides, which is typical of the age. 
Tyndale does seem to keep himself composed. Sir Thomas More does not. Thomas More eventually publishes after a while an enormous book, just too long, rambling, attacking Tyndale in every part. You get a sense of what he degenerated into with just this one little part from the book. What he's doing at this section is he's quoting Tyndale and then he's responding to it. So here's his quote of Tyndale, Thomas More's. Tyndale says, Judge whether it be possible that any good should come out of their silent ceremonies and sacraments. And More gives this very reasonable, well-reasoned, logical response. Judge, good Christian reader, whether it be possible that he, Tyndale, be any better than a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth comes such a filthy foam. (laughs) Refuted. That's what it had been turning into. This was, I mean, this is like a battle in the Facebook comments before there was a Facebook. That's what's happening. Tyndale had, also around this time, and we don't know all the details of when he went where, but at some point he goes from Worms, he moves on again, this time outside of Germany, to Antwerp, which is in nearby Belgium. Antwerp was pumping out illegal Reformation literature. There were tons of printers pumping this stuff out. So it seemed a great place, of course, for William Tyndale to go and continue his work. He goes there. It's while he's in Antwerp that he's working not only on an important revision of his New Testament, but he's also working on the most important of all his writings beside his translation. Two of these are worth mentioning. In one of them... I believe it's the practice of prelates. I should have written it here. But in one of them, no, that might not be it. Forget that. One of the important ones, I'm sorry, I'll have to go back. He argues for justification by faith alone and against the sacramental system of the church. So that's one of them. The other one, this is the one I have recorded here, is called The Obedience of the Christian Man. A beautiful little writing about submitting to authorities. He's trying to say, We Protestants are protesting, but not just for protesting's sake. We're not just rebels. We're trying to obey God. So he talks about all the ways we submit to authority. One interesting point about this book is Anne Boleyn, one of the many wives of the King of England, Henry VIII, she just so happened to be the one just a little while after this obedience book was written, she actually owned a copy and it cherished it. She read it and enjoyed it. She actually also owned an illegal copy of Tyndale's New Testament, made up in purple and gold. But she didn't last long, you may be aware of that. Tyndale was attacking the church, it's true, but the biggest attack, more than any of these other writings, was his New Testament. And here's the reason. In his New Testament, he absolutely refused to translate those words which the church, using the Latin, had mistranslated and twisted out of context to support its huge system of salvation. He wouldn't translate it the way the church wanted. That was the greatest danger. So, for example, when John the Baptist stands up and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're aware that repent, metanaeo in the Greek, means a change of mind, a change of direction. But the church took that as do penance. Do you see the difference? Penance was a programmatic part of the sacramental system, the system of salvation, doing penance. The priest, you would go in for confession and then you would confess and the priest would give you penance to do to basically get rid of some of the penalty in some sense. Do penance. Again, confession. The church used confession as a term. Confession's okay term, but the way the church was using it was for the sacrament of confession. And so Tyndale took exomalageo, which is the Greek for that, and every time he found it, he translated instead, acknowledge your sin, or something like that, which is what it means. Again, Amazingly, 
when the New Testament used the word presbyteros, which clearly means elder, someone who's older, an elder in the church, the church was taking that and translating it as priest. Very different, but the priests were pivotal in their system. And of course, Tyndale didn't play by their rules, so he translated it first as senior and then as elder. It's really this New Testament. If the people get a hold of this, the church realizes this will undercut everything we are. So the church is raging. In fact, Tyndale, at a distance, his heart is breaking because many of his acquaintances, many of his friends, John Frith, one of his very close friends, many of the people he knew who were sympathetic to the Reformation were being burned in England as he was writing. And it's probably around this time Tyndale, no doubt, he knows the risks of what he's doing. He may think, you know, it's only a matter of time. There was at one point four different people King Henry had sent to the continent to be searching for this man. He's a hunted man. He's the biggest game. And so he probably realizes it's only a matter of time. So he is feverishly trying to, I imagine feverishly, trying to translate the Old Testament. He's done the New. He wants the Old in English. He gets through the Pentateuch. He gets through several other important books. He's trying to finish, but the walls are closing in. In fact, at one point, the king sent a messenger in one of the king's good moods. He had those sometimes. And he invited Tyndale, said, you know what? We're wrong. Why don't you? Well, he didn't say that. You know, he's King Henry VIII. But he said, okay, you come Help me out with something I'm trying to do here politically, and you can be here and we're not going to hurt you. Tyndale, he was a simple man in some ways, and trusting, but he was not naive And in this case. So his reply was to the messenger, look, if the king will this moment authorize an English translation, probably any English translation of the Bible, I will right now surrender myself stop writing against the church, and I'll surrender myself even to death, anything that the king wants. Well, you don't, you don't barter with King Henry, so he loses interest, and that's the end of that. But the doors, the walls are closing in. In the preface of one of his books, Tyndale wrote, in burning the New Testament, they did none other thing than what I expected them to do. And it will be nothing else than what I expect if they burn me also. If it be God's will, it shall be so. Nevertheless, in translating the New Testament, I did my duty. So now he's trying to finish the old. The walls are closing in. And that brings us to the conclusion now of Tyndale's life and of his task. As we had said, he'd come to Antwerp. Maybe he left, came back. He's at Antwerp at this point. He's in the house now of Thomas Points, which is... Interesting because when he was back in Little Sodbury Manor in Gloucestershire, he was staying with Sir John Walsh and his wife was Anne Points, this person's cousin. So there's a connection there. But now he's staying with Thomas Points in his hand, in his house, sorry. And I'm certain he wanted to finish the Old Testament, but that was not what God had for him. Now enters the Judas of the whole Reformation. One of the most villainous, slimiest people in our study of the Reformation. And that's a a big statement because there are lots of slimy people there. His name is Henry Phillips. He is only famous today for being a villain and being a Judas. Now, Henry Phillips seemed to come out of nowhere. He's a very young man. He had just graduated from Oxford, so he had that in common. And maybe that's one of the ways... He slithered his way into Tyndale's confidence. Tyndale tended to be a trusting man, even though he'd been on the run for 10 years. Thomas Points does not trust this Henry or Harry Phillips. There's something suspicious about why is he coming around now and trying to be your friend. But, unfortunately, Tyndale does trust him. One day, they go out for lunch or for dinner to go eat together. And just, you know, to make the villain all the more villainous, Henry Phillips, here's the thing about Phillips that we know of him. 
It turns out he was actually the son of an English gentleman, but he was spoiled, always complaining that he didn't have enough money. He actually wasted his money by his own admission at the games, at play. So he didn't have much money. And what had almost certainly happened, I don't know that we have documentation of this, but what had almost certainly happened is here's this spoiled young gentleman's son. He's got no money and the church approaches him and says, we can make you an offer you won't refuse. So he's in this almost certainly for his 30 coins. So he's taking Tyndale out. And before they go, he asked Tyndale, hey, I seem to have left my purse. Could I, could I borrow a little bit of money? Tyndale gives it to him. Of course, he knows what's about to happen to Tyndale, so he gets to keep that money. So off they go. They're walking along. Harry may have been a sort of replacement son for Tyndale. He was a priest who never had children of his own. He was certainly a father figure toward Harry. They come to a sort of narrowing, a sort of alley. And there they go, and Harry steps aside. You know, you first. Tyndale walks ahead of him. Two guards are stationed at the end of the alley and Phillips comes behind him pointing down. This is the one. Betrays him with a point rather than a kiss and the guards grab him. And this ends the task of William Tyndale. There was one thing, I suppose, that William Tyndale had kept all these 10 years when he'd lost pretty much everything else and that was his freedom. And now that's taken away from him. For a year and a half... He's put into Vilvorde Castle, V-I-L-V-O-R-D-E. It's not good conditions. He experiences a winter there. It's not good. Another sad happening is that Thomas Points at this time had actually worked very hard and managed to get an agreement with some of the leaders to release his friend Tyndale. Tyndale was this close to being released And you know what happened? Henry Phillips, still there, because he probably doesn't get his money till the deed is done, intervenes, debates, argues, makes sure that William Tyndale gets what's coming to him. The leaders change their mind. In fact, they turn on Thomas Points. They arrest him. He flees the country. He survives, but is financially ruined because of Henry Phillips. Now, there's only one letter of Tyndale that survives, strange for a reformer. It wasn't found until the 1800s, actually. And this is a letter that he wrote at some point in Vilvord Castle in his imprisonment. He wrote it to someone in charge of the prison there. I wish I could quote it to you in full, but we don't have time. It's such a poignant letter. Basically, he's writing very graciously. He says, look, you have my things. You confiscated them. Could you please give me my warmer hat, and my warmer socks, if I'm going to endure another winter? I'm, he said he's sick. He's got a sickness, probably from the cold. So he's suffering, and then he, in a very pitiable way, still his mind on his task. Even now, he hopes against hope that he could finish his translation, I'm sure. And he, he asks kindly if he could get his Hebrew Bible and grammar and dictionary so that he has a way to pass the time. But then he finishes with this. If any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. Another decision was made concerning him. We don't know if he got any of those things or not. But there was another decision made on October the 6th, 1536, He had been already removed from the priesthood in a very shameful ceremony. October the 6th, 1536, they lead him out publicly and they attach him to an upright stake. For some reason, maybe because he was a scholar or he wasn't a lapsed heretic or whatever, they strangle him before they burn him. So they strangle him and burn him. There is a little bit of a legend it might very well be true. We don't know. But at least one person, John Fox, says that the last words he cried out before he was strangled, of course, were these. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And then William Tyndale came to the end of his task and the end of his life. 
and Jesus received his spirit. William Tyndale's entire life was moving in just one direction, and that direction was to get an English Bible to a plowboy. That was his whole life. Tyndale died in 1536 asking God to open King Henry's eyes. We're not certain his eyes ever really opened fully, but maybe in just this one regard because the next year, 1537, the king authorized the first authorized English translation of the Bible in England. It was the Matthew Bible, but it was Tyndale. It was just Tyndale with additions of what he didn't translate. Though it cost William Tyndale his home, homeland, comfort, ease, security, it even cost him his life. Through his efforts, that plowboy heard God speak to him through the Bible for the first time ever in his own language. Soon, after this time, England itself will experience a reformation and will turn away from the Roman Catholic Church. We will see that soon in the life of Thomas Cranmer. Probably this Bible had an influence, and if politics hadn't driven, the tur- driven England out of the church, this Bible might have done it anyways. Tyndale, like Abel before him, even though he's dead, he's still speaking. You know where he's speaking? He's been speaking in you, in your thoughts, ever since you were born, if you speak English. So many phrases come from him that we speak today. So many of the things that we say. I had some of those listed earlier, but I guess I've missed over those. Things like mercy seat. If you've ever used the word German. If you've ever used the word thanksgiving. That comes from this man. He invented that word. That and so many other words were brought into the English language by William Tyndale. Jehovah, broken-hearted, busybody, long-suffering, lost, fisherman, zealous, Moses, servant, and hundreds others had never been spoken or written before. And that's how you think. You think with those words, William Tyndale's words. And if you have a Bible and grew up in the church, Tyndale has been there with you. It's been through him you've read God's word. So, when you're at your cubicle this week or on the factory line, or you're at home raising your little ones, wherever you are, if you call to mind a passage of scripture to comfort or encourage you, remember William Tyndale. And whether you remember him or not, by God's providence, there he is. So that concludes Tyndale, and we have a few minutes if anyone has any questions. Yes? Oh, good question. Marilyn's asking if he had any contact with Martin Luther. The answer is we don't know. So he, it's a a strange and interesting thing. They are. So we don't have any definitive evidence that he went to Wittenberg, which is where Luther was. Many scholars think he may have for this reason. If you go into the chronicles at Wittenberg, there is a guest book, and those who came would write their name. The reformers, being wanted men, would use pseudonyms or false names. About the time that scholars think he would have gone to Wittenberg if he did, there is an entry that has a William Dal in Latin, it's Daltici, but it looks like taking Tyndale and just swapping the front and the back. So they think he may have gone there to freshen up or to learn even Hebrew, and that might have happened under Martin Luther, but we don't know for sure. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, this may or may not have anything to do with it, but you know, there's that Tyndale Publishing Company. Yes. Might that have anything to do with his family? That's a great point. So Kathy's asking, there's Tyndale Publishing Company today. Is that related to Tyndale? And the answer is yes. Actually, of course, in Florida, we have Wycliffe Bible Translators, which is interesting. Wycliffe was very important with the idea of translating the Bible is actually Tyndale who really did it in an effective way. But Tyndale lives on in publishing. Yes. Yeah. Did he put in the chapter and verses? Oh, did he put chapter and verses? Um, I'm trying to think at what point those came in. I'm guessing not, but I cannot be certain about that. So. The Old Testament? So he had some help. Um, there was a man, I'm trying to remember, 
so the unfortunate thing, there was a William Roy who betrayed him, helped him with the New Testament. There was a George Joy, spelled just like Roy but with a J, who ended up really disappointing him with the Old Testament. He was involved. I think that a man named John Rogers, familiar with John Rogers, he would publish the, he was the one who published the Matthew Bible. Uh, he used Matthew as a pseudonym so they wouldn't know him. I think that he's the one who helped with the rest of the Old Testament. And he must have done some fast work because it came out just a year after his death there. So I think John Rogers, although I, I should know that, but you'd have to probably Google it. So. Yeah, Rick. Hmm. So Rick is, yeah, Rick is, Rick is mentioning that probably the Tyndale Bible was brought over, the pilgrims brought over. Actually, um, it may have been at that point the Geneva Bible, which the Geneva Bible is a lot Tyndale. It follows in that train. All, all these Bibles, Matthew Bible, Great Bible, Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible the Puritans preferred because some of the, for example, the word charity, which fits in the sacramental system, Tyndale had translated as love for the first time, which was very important. But then the King James actually reversed that and put it back as charity. The Puritans were not happy with some of those, and so they preferred their Geneva Bible. So maybe that's what came with them, that's my guess. Yeah, in the back. Oh, so any surviving copies of Wycliffe? Are you thinking Tyndale or Wycliffe? Wycliffe, the original. Surviving copies of Wycliffe. I know we have two copies of Tyndale's first New Testament. Do we have Wycliffe? Wycliffe's would all have been handwritten? That's a good question. I imagine we have some copies. Probably. Nothing original. I don't know how we'd know if it was original. Yeah, it's a good question. Google knows. You can go ask Google. Sometimes. Sometimes. All right. Well, let's, let me pray for us and we will be done. Lord, thank you very much again for encouraging us through one of your servants who has been dead a long time, died early in life, at the hands of persecutors, just like you, Jesus, did as well. You did it for the plowboy and did it for us, in some way thinking about us, the common Christian who speaks English. And today, we follow in that, that long trail of benefit. Thank you, God. Although Tyndale was your human instrument, it was you who desired for us to have your word in our language so that we could read it and study it and know it and memorize it and speak it and believe it and live by it and be transformed by it. You intended this and you accomplished it and we praise you for your great and mighty work through your weak and lowly servant, William Tyndale. Amen.